This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Logan Anderson here, your host, as you just heard the big voice guy say. He did it a little bit better than I did. Right now, we are joined by a special guest this week, Dave Gorin. He is the executive director of the NSMA and the Media Hall of Fame in Salisbury, North Carolina. Of course, he is the commander-in-chief who puts on the big weekend coming up on June I believe 17th through the 20th in North Carolina. And Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Logan. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, any better, and I would be you. (laughs) So I guess I just want to start off talking about your big event right away because that's the reason I wanted to have you on is because you are the executive director of the NSMA. You put together the great event each year I've gone for the last two years. When do you start preparing for that event, well, as you said, this year our event end of the last night with the banquet is June twentieth, and we'll start preparing. I'd say June twenty first, but that's probably a bit of a lie since we have to say goodbye to everybody and get them back to the airport, and then usually take a day to collapse, and then um, and then we you know we'll have a little post mortem what went right, what went wrong, and what we can do better next time. And so then we start preparing probably a couple of weeks out. So you were a long-time sportscaster on both radio and TV around North Carolina. How did you get in to being the executive director of the National Sports Media Association? How do you find that bridge and get to that point in your career? Uh, completely by accident, actually. Um, I call it karma or whatever you want to believe in. Um I had worked as the as a sportscaster at the NBC affiliate in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for 20 years. And in late 2008 was told, guess what? When your contract's up at the end of January, we're not going to renew it. Uh, here's a little parting gift. Thanks for 20 years. See you later. And I was 48 years old at the time. I had no idea what I wanted to do next, knowing full well that Local TV was probably not the career to uh, stay in since there aren't a whole lot of local TV stations around the country who would be hiring a 48-year-old TV sports guy. So as I was thinking about that, two months later I find out I am fortunate to be elected by my peers as the North Carolina Sportscaster of the Year through the what's now the National Sports Media Association. And as my wife said, sure, everybody else gets to fly across country to come to this cool event. We get to drive 45 minutes to Salisbury. Well, I'm there during the awards weekend in May of 2009, and the local board president, president of the then National Sportscasters and Sportswriters Association, says, hey, Dave, why don't you apply for our executive director job? It's open. And my exact words to him were, I'm not sure what I want to do when I grow up yet. And I say that half in jest because covering sports for a living, yes, it's work. And yes, those of us who do it work hard at it and put in long hours, a lot of them nights and weekends and holidays. But for us, if you love sports, it's not like a job. So that's why I said that. But, you know, I started to think about it and I said, you know what, that would be a a good way to stay involved in sports media. And so I applied for the job, was interviewed, was called back as a finalist. 
interviewed again and ended up getting the job and uh, started September 1st, 2009. So been on the job almost seven years, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to say that I enjoy doing this job as much as I did doing TV sports, and I never thought I would say that after I left it. How often do you still get on the air in either TV or radio at this point? I'm sure you occasionally still dabble, flick on that switch, and uh, and open up the mic. Well, I, I, I joke that I have a both literal and figurative sideline job, and it is as the sideline reporter for Wake Forest football games on the radio. And uh, I enjoy doing that. It you know, keeps my hand in and keeps some limited skills going. Don't do any TV anymore unless somebody were to uh, interview me. And I've been interviewed a couple times uh, since I left TV, but I don't do any of that uh, on a full-time or part-time basis. So just just that radio gig, uh, you know, 12, 12 Saturdays, or this year I guess it's 11 Saturdays and one Thursday night in the fall. So... Take us back a little bit farther, and I've asked everyone who's come on the podcast this. I'm going all out of order and messing up my chronology here on the timeline, but what was your big break getting into sportscasting out of school? What was your first kind of weird connection that got you in the industry? I've been fascinated with a lot of those answers from people, and I want to I want to know what yours is now. Well, my, I had a, it's not a weird occurrence. I actually... I actually worked into it, is what I did. Um, I had been out of college for three years and was spending my time substitute teaching and working for a small radio station, still writing for my hometown newspaper, which I had started doing when I was in high school. But I really wanted to get into TV. And so at, at a radio station where I worked in Brockton, Massachusetts, I got myself a season media credential to cover Providence College basketball. And when I was there one night, I went up to the gentleman who was the sports director at the NBC station in Providence, Rhode Island, and is still the sports director in Providence, Rhode Island, 32 years later. His name is Frank Carpano, and I said, I'm trying to get into TV. Do you, I'm out of college, but you know, do you have anything... I'll volunteer, I'll do anything. And he said, call the weekend guy, Jack Edwards. So I called Jack, and Jack said, great, when can you start? Because as I grew to realize when I was in TV, hey, free help, this is great. So I started with Jack on weekends in February of 1984 at WJAR in Providence. And Jack was great because he was as detail-oriented as anyone I've ever worked with. And he started as the weekend sports guy and got a job out of there in Boston. But in the meantime, he had recommended me to the news director in Providence saying, why don't we hire Dave as a number three guy? You know, he, he's shown he's, he knows what he can do. And, and I say that when I said I worked into it, I worked actually 1,100 hours for free between February and November. Uh, you know, I came in when I wasn't substitute teaching or doing radio stuff. And they hired me part-time as an associate producer in sports for $5.45 an hour. And you would have thought I had, you know, hit the lottery right there. 
But when Jack left and went to Boston, he then recommended me to be a fill-in sports producer uh, at WCVB in Boston. So when the regular sports producers were sick or on vacation and they needed a fill-in, I would get the call. So I'm going back and forth between Providence and Boston. And for those who don't know their geography, they're separated by maybe an hour. And so I was, at that time, young and single and very few responsibilities. Between the two, I would work 35 days in a row, have a day off. Work 28 days in a row, have a day off. And I couldn't get enough of it. I didn't even I didn't even want the days off after a while. And so that was my version of paying my dues. Uh, you know, as I said, I was ended up I ended up being hired in November. Uh, they let me do some on-air stuff, some reporting, some live stuff. Would not let let me anchor the sportscast, and I really didn't care except I wanted to have the experience of having done it. I love reporting because you're out doing a different story every day, and that's really what I wanted to do. And then uh, I'll take you into my 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 second stop, which was really my last stop. I sent uh, found out about an opening in Winston Salem, North Carolina, for a sports director job. I sent a resume tape, which is what you did in those days. Now you can just send links to your demo reel online. But I sent a resume tape for the sports director's job. Heard nothing for four months. I get a phone call from the news director in August of that year. We're in 1984 now. And, I'm sorry, 1988 now. And he said, I feel you're ready for your for the sports director's job, but would you be interested in the number three sports job? Well, I wanted a full-time on-air job in TV, so I said yes. Uh, he ended up hiring me, and I went from the number three guy, which I did for about nine months. The weekend guy left. I took his job. I did weekend sports for 12 years, and then was the number one guy, the main sports guy in my last seven years there. And, you know, snap your fingers just like that. There's my 24-year career in TV sports. Did you go originally to school for broadcasting? I, I know you said you did substitute teaching. Did you want to be a teacher, or how did you decide to go into broadcasting? Well, I had, you know, I had been a sports fan like most of us, I think, in this business from an early age. Um, was afraid of the baseball. I was actually a decent hitter, but I was afraid of the baseball. <laughs> um, too short, didn't shoot well. Um Hockey didn't come along until I, I was too old. I was 10 or 11 by the time hockey came to my hometown. And, um, so I figured, oh, what better way to be around it than write about it or talk about it? And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I started writing sports for my local paper when I was a junior in high school. But, you know, the young me thought that all the money was in TV, so that's where I was going to go. You know, little did I know that's not necessarily the case. But I, I went to I went to Sturgis University with the uh, the full intent and idea to be a, either radio or TV sportscaster. I didn't know which, and had the opportunity to do major college radio play by play when I was in college. In fact, the first time I uh, first time I ever got on an airplane was to go do a two game Syracuse basketball road trip. It was finals week in December, but I said, you know, this is going to be my career, so I'll, I'll worry about finals later and go do the basketball road trip. 
And so I had great experience. I thought coming out of college, um, I sent probably 300 resumes out to uh, about 220 TV stations and 80 radio stations seeking any kind of job. And uh, I got four requests for videotapes. Probably because I uh, I shot too I aimed too high, uh, too big a market, and ended up living at home and doing the radio stuff until I finally said, you know, what can I do in Providence? And they hired me. So that's how. You, how did you get into substitute teaching? Uh, that was by necessity to make money. <laughs> and I think that started. I think at seventeen dollars and fifty cents a day. Okay, so if you're a Syracuse guy, give us a Jim Beheim story. Uh, well, there, there's a, a school of thought that unless Jim Beheim has ripped you a new one when you're a student there, that you haven't really earned your stripes as a, as a broadcaster. I was fortunate. My freshman year in college was Beheim's second year as the head coach there. So, you know, I feel old, but think how old he must feel because he's still coaching it's what, 40, 40th year, 41st year, something like that. So I go on stays throughout college. Two years after I graduate, I'm working a working for the radio station in Brockton, Massachusetts, and I'm working a Syracuse-Boston College game at Boston College. Syracuse down by double digits most of the game. They, he puts on the press. They come back. They tie it. They end up losing it overtime. After the game is over, I, you know, a bunch of reporters around Beheim, and I say, was there any thought to going to the press earlier, which I thought was a rather innocuous question. And that's where I proceeded to earn my stripes when he ripped me a new one in front of the assembled media gang. And thankfully, Leslie Visser, who at that time was working for the Boston Globe, sauntered over because Jim's attention then went to her, and he put his arm around her, and he was done chewing me out for my lack of knowledge about the game (laughs) oh joy so one of the things i like to i've talked with people you're the first syracuse graduate that we've had here and obviously the newhouse school has a about as good a reputation as you can possibly have there's some haters against it there's some people who maybe have jealousy and will try to knock those people but what is the biggest advantage of having that syracuse education compared to just anywhere else in the country? Well, I think they have the facilities there. That's uh, one of the, one of the things that just remodeled and renovated and updated uh, a bunch of things there. The Dick Clark studio. I mean, that was, I think a bunch of us, when we're looking at schools are seduced by the big names. And I think now that's really the advantage that Syracuse has is the, the number of people who are working in the industry who went to the Newhouse School and the, you know, the network now, even compared to what it was when I got out, is tremendous. I mean, if you learn, if you lean on the people, and, and I'm not even talking about the Bob Costas's and Marv Alberts and Dick Stockton's and Mike Tirico's and Sean McDonough's, and I can go on, but the people who may be having the might be in their first or second job in TV or radio who can maybe help you get that first job in a, small, in a smaller market. And, and that's not necessarily something they had going 35 years ago when I graduated. I think that's the, the 
big advantage. You know, as far as education, I'm a fan of you get out of it what you put into it. And so for me, it doesn't. I don't think it really matters a whole lot where you go for the education. But I think there is something to be said about having the tools at your disposal to learn your craft and then having the alumni network to be able to get a job in the industry. But as far as, you know, the importance of going to a school just because it has its reputation, uh, you know, I, I don't want to belittle the faculty at any institution, but I think you're going to get out of it the work that you put into it, the bottom line. So you've lived in Syracuse and Boston and North Carolina. Those are three places that are known for having heavy accents, yet I'm talking to you right now and I'm not really hearing one. How have you avoided not picking up an accent coming from those three places in, in your time? Well, I grew up in southeastern Massachusetts, about 16 miles northeast of Providence, Rhode Island, about 40 miles southwest of Boston. And I am sure that growing up, I had the same accent as most Bay Staters, at least east of Springfield have. In fact, the, uh, my story that illustrates that is when my wife and I were engaged and she came home with me to Massachusetts for the first time. And in New England, your high school plays its rivalry, its rival, the rivalry gang, game, I should say, on Thanksgiving morning. That's the last game of the regular season. And then they only, they used to only do a Super Bowl for the two top-rated teams in each division. Now they have a couple of playoff games. But back in the day, it was that. So anyway, fast forward or fast rewind back. My wife comes with me, my then fiance, to my high school, Taunton High School against Bridgewater Rainham, which was their rival at the time. And the public address announcer, who when I was in high school was my guidance counselor, said, and now the Tigers have the ball on the BI-35. And Ada, my fiance at the time, turns to him, what's BI? <laughs> and I said, that's actually BR, but not the way we say it here. So we had to do a little translation, but I think what happened was I went to Syracuse, and within about two weeks, knowing what I wanted to do for a living, I decided I had to learn to say that letter between Q and F the right way. So I want to get back into the Hall of Fame weekend and the Hall of Fame in general and just kind of get a little bit of what goes into it. We talked about when you start working on it, but what are maybe some of the legwork, what is some of the legwork that we don't know about that you have to go through putting something like that and getting that many people together? I think maybe the most difficult thing is because we're in a fairly small city, a city of about 33,000. There are not a whole lot of options uh, at which to hold your events, most of our events are between 200 and 400 people. And so that's always a big juggling act because we have to find out if the venues that can accommodate that many people are available when we want them to be available. And part of that goes back the history of the awards weekend. It used to be late April, early May. When I started at NSMA seven years ago, 
I heard complaints that a lot of the bigger-named award winners were not coming to the awards weekend. And what I discovered was that the weekend that we held our awards weekend on conflicted with the sports Emmys in New York City. So right after our first awards weekend that I was uh, working at, I called the folks at the sports Emmys in New York and I said, okay, when is your awards banquet next year because I want to move our awards weekend away from it. And they told me that. We went a little bit later in May. And then the next year, we had a conflict at the headquarters hotel in May, so we moved it into June. And then the last two years, our national sportscaster of the year was Mike Emmerich. And banquet night the last two years, Mike Emmerich was doing game three of the Stanley Cup finals and wasn't at our banquet. So for this year, we moved it back two more weeks, so we're now June 18th through the 20th. And I'm hoping that... Most everybody comes. Uh, Mike Emmerich, who won again this year, uh, will be here to receive his National Sportscaster Award. Uh, Tom Verducci will be back to get his second straight National Sports Writer of the Year Award. And all three of our living Hall of Fame inductees, Chris Berman, Billy Packer, and Gary Smith, are coming as well. So that's the good news. But to answer your question, uh, the, re- the real heavy lifting starts after we announce the awards winners. Um, you know, we do our nomination voting mid-October to mid-November, and then the final balloting takes place during the month of December. So you know, as soon as January 1 hits, I start I start crafting a my master database. So I go through and I do state by state each of my winners, and I get contact information for each of them. That usually takes the better part of a weekend. I then call each of them individually to let them know that they've won. That takes usually a good week or so. That includes, by the way, the national winners and the Hall of Famers, who are usually my first calls. And so now I have a database of all the people and their home addresses and their cell numbers and their work numbers and their Twitter handles in many cases because I put it out on Twitter when we announce it. Uh, we write a news release. I come up with a database to help sell program ads to help pay for our awards weekend, which is rather pricey. Um, I then I have an attendance sheet where, okay, who's coming? Which hotel? At which hotel are they staying? How many nights are they coming for? Uh, if they want us to pick them up at the airport with a shuttle van, What's their flight number? What time are they arriving? Same thing for departure on the way out. We take them back to the airport. Um, Then we start uh, getting with the venues. Okay, where are we going to hold each of our events? Sign contracts with all of them. Decide on menus for the meals. Um, Who's playing in our golf tournament? Who's playing in our tennis tournament? Who's going to run those events for us? well, I end up with about a 12 to 15 page database, which uh, is quite labor intensive. And you know, we have board meetings once a month. We have program committee meetings. Our volunteers, we meet once a month and then every two weeks the last month. You know, what are they going to help us do? Who's going, who's going to be at the registration table? Who will greet people as they get there? Uh, who will 
you know, who will be our local host. We try to pair local people with our out-of-town winners just to hang out with them a little bit and make them feel comfortable. And, you know, if they have an emergency, can I give you a ride, you know, to the store to get something, you know, maybe something they forgot to pack on their way. So there are a lot of moving parts. Part of me wishes I had uh, I had gone to school for logistics rather than broadcast journalism. <laughs> That certainly would be quite the talent to pick up. Got to have a lot of time management. What percentage, since you get to know all of kind of the biggest names in our industry in your position, and you don't have to drop any names here, but what percentage of the people who are Hall of Famers are good dudes, and what percentage of them are kind of jerks? Uh, I have yet to meet a jerk, which I'm I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. <laughs> say because you figure in any group you're going to have a couple and I, it, it's been very gratifying for me not only to not have any jerks and you have to realize when they come to Salisbury for the weekend they're being honored so they're they're going to be you figure on their best behavior um, you know some people are and, and I tell the local people it's like one thing you have to realize is that even those of us in the business cannot cannot comprehend the schedule that some of these bigger people have. I mean, some of them are on an airplane three times a week to do games in different cities and different parts of the country or all around the world. So realize that because they are working so much that some of them have people to do things for them, and that's what they're used to. That, that doesn't mean they're jerks. That means they're really, really busy that's what they're used to. So, so, so have we seen that occasionally? Occasionally, but not, not bad, and, and it's not something that I, I worry about a whole lot. So let's flip that around, and maybe you'll be less hesitant to not drop any names on this way. Who have been the Hall of Famers who have impressed you the most as far as being gracious? Uh, probably the biggest name is Bob Constance. Um, but I can go right down the list. Dick Vitale, Mitch Album, Rick Riley, uh, Bob Ryan. Uh, you know, that's just a few of them. And, and they've all been really good and really nice. But I've been particularly impressed and gratified for the involvement that someone like Bob Ryan has shown as the chair of our national board. Somebody like Bob Costas, who is as busy as anybody out there, Bob Costas is on our Hall of Fame committee and has actually been on some of the calls. In fact, two weeks ago today, set, a, set up a meeting with us uh, at Major League Baseball headquarters. And not only did he meet us for lunch first, but he came to Major League Baseball with us and laid out the plan that we wanted to discuss with Major League Baseball. So in the your winner's of your National Hall of Famers every time they all pose for a picture with baseball bats. You know, I don't think that's being fair to all the other sports. How come you don't ever rotate that with basketballs or hockey sticks or shoulder pads? You know, that's, that's, that's actually a very good question, Logan. <laughs> uh, last year, if you remember, uh, Hal McCoy, who does not see very well, almost clocked Trish Schaap, Dick Schaap's widow, with the, with the Louisville Slugger. So, 
you know, I'm thinking maybe Nerf balls would be the way to go. <laughs> so there's a couple categories that I emailed you before this that I think should be awards that I'm probably going to give out as awards for my website that you probably can't ever give out in your event. But I want your opinion on them to begin with okay. on the the quality of the category and maybe a couple potential nominees if you can think of someone off your head. We're going to start off with the Bedroom Baby Making Award for the broadcaster with the smoothest <laughs> voice in radio. In radio? Or TV. That's in broadcasting. Well, when I think of smooth, the first person who comes to my mind is Jim Nance. I just think he has a very soothing voice. So he would be he would be my number one nominee there. Okay, the second one is going to be the Vegas Hangover Award for the person who can stay out until bar close but still nail the broadcast. And there's a lot of those broadcasters out there. Can you narc a couple out? I feel this is a compliment. Not a, say what? Well, I'm trying to think of broadcasters. I, I know. I, I think more. More now. John Feinstein had his own radio show. Does he count? Sure. As a broadcaster. Yes. That would be him. And I'll go back to. I think it was 2004. The NCAA basketball final four in San Antonio. John Blair Kirkall from the Kansas City Star. Ed Harden from the Greensboro News and Record. One other person and I were at the hotel bar in the, the media hotel, and Feinstein told stories till four in the morning. <laughs> and they were some of the best stories that I could not repeat on radio, TV, or even your podcast. <laughs> but I mean, nobody listens to this, Dave. It's after okay. Another after another. Okay. You know, that's that gives me a little... We're going to take a quick break from that. And the mixers at your event sometimes are a little bit legendary. There's a lot of people, and there's a lot of free beer. And certainly you have to use a little bit of tact with this. But are there any good stories from your mixers that you can tell of people who have done silly things late at night? Um, now, I am usually the last one to go to bed. So if anyone would know that at least over the last seven years, it would be me. And I can't think of anyone who has acted um, inappropriately since I've been there. Um, now, I've heard legends from the past, but since I was not uh, privy to those firsthand, I, I won't spread rumor. <laughs> um, but but you, know, you bring that up, and, and seriously... For me, that's the best part of the awards weekend is to get to meet so many people and and, and stay up as you know, as late as I'm allowed and just to get to meet people from all over the country who do what we do. It's I, I tell college students if you can afford to come to that weekend, it is as good a networking opportunity as you will get. And, Obviously, in my position, it's a little bit different, but I enjoy keeping in touch with everybody I meet. When you started as the executive director of the NSMA, back then it was the NSSA, were you ever starstruck the first time you met someone? Um, yes. And it's funny, because you're in the business, and you know, I've been around some of these people a lot, but now they're actually talking to me. And you know, the first person, I mean, the first time I was I was at an event, 
that wasn't our awards weekend, and and Bob Costas was there, and he said hi to me before using my name before I said hi to him. Uh, you know, I, you could have blown me over with a something very light. Uh, I can't even think of the comparison, but you know, I'm not I'm not used to being recognized by people of that stature, so it takes a little bit of getting used to. But you know, as I tell people. And it's just like the athletes we cover. Aside from a freak off-the-chart skill, which for athletes is the athletic skill, and for the Hall of Fame sportscasters and sports writers is the ability to communicate either voice or or written word. They're just like you. They're just like you and me. Some are better, some are worse, and a lot of them are just the same. And and and, and that's to me what makes everybody so interesting that each of these people has a story. So back to the fake awards that should be real awards. The <laughs> Harry Doyle Award for the funniest broadcaster on the air in a game. It can't just be funny, you know, in the mixer. He's got to be funny on the air while being good at what he does. Who do I really like funny? I don't know why it's not coming to me because there are... No, I know who it is. Sean McDonough. Sean is, Sean is hysterically funny in person. Actually, you know what? I'll go for it. You were at the banquet last year, right? Mm-hmm. Sean McDonough and Ian Eagle, the two of them together <laughs> presenting Bill Raftery for the Hall of Fame. For me, that was the highlight of the whole weekend. But I think they're both really good doing games. But they are very dry, have a dry sense of humor. Two excellent selections right there. I'm surprised you didn't go with Bob Euchre since it is the Harry Doyle Award, but maybe that's just too obvious. Um, The next one is the Y. Oh, go ahead. You're right. It's probably too obvious. (laughs) Next one is the YMCA Pickup Award for non-pro athlete, they're excluded, who are broadcasters who are good at sports. Yeah, good yeah. at sports. I know, well, Tom Verducci, does he count because he does MLB Network games? Sure. We don't have any rules on the Say the Damn Sports podcast. What's that? We don't have any rules on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Even better. Well, Tom Verducci is a very good athlete. He played uh, golf at our, our golf tournament before the banquet last year, and I know he's playing again this year, so... I understand he's a very good golfer. I will go with him. Okay, and the forgot-his-gym-clothes guy who is a broadcaster who is probably not very good at sports and might not be able to actually dribble a basketball. I would say that would probably be a 40,000-way tie for first. <laughs> there are a lot of us who uh, might have that kind of kind of problem. I don't want to project... Uh, an air of complete and, and utter uh, failure on any one person. <laughs> Are there any legendarily bad golfers who consistently come to the golf tournament that you can you can throw out there? Actually, one of our one of our state sportscasters of the year last year who has won the award. 
uh, a handful of times. I will tell you that he played last year, and it might have been his second time, with Drew Bowie, who's on our honorary board. Drew was a star wide receiver at Catawba College, which is where we are headquartered in Salisbury. He was a star player there in the 1960s. Went on to the NFL with the Oakland Raiders and played. He was on John Madden's first team with the Raiders. Um, was due for a breakout season and blew out his knee, so that was the end of his NFL career. But Drew has since gone on to become a very good high school coach in the uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina school system. And he regularly comes and plays as kind of as one of the celebrities in our tournament. So he played with this state sportscaster from the Intermountain region last year. And a month ago, when I saw Drew, he said, just do me a favor. Don't pair me up with that guy from X State again. I said, why not? He said, I, I'm not the best golfer in the world, but this guy is pitiful. So <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's that's that's... <laughs> Weaseling out of that one, but and not and not that I don't want people to listen to your podcast, but I hope that person is not right now listening to your podcast. <laughs> We're going to go now with the Slam Poet Award for the broadcaster who used lots of unnecessarily big words that you need a dictionary next to your night table or on the other seat of your car to listen to listen to as well as you'd like to and understand everything. won't go unnecessarily big words, but the guy who uses a lot of words and is able to do it so well that he's been our national sportscaster of the year now, three years running, is Doc Emmer, who can think of more adjectives than any English teacher I've <laughs> ever had. And the last one is going to be the Boom Goes the Dynamite Award for the best catchphrase used by a broadcaster in, you know, in the country or just in your Hall of Fame class that you've heard. Best catchphrase. It's awesome, baby, with a capital A. How about that? I, I don't know who that is. You're going to have to do better. <laughs> <laughs> um. Fame three years ago. All right. Well, that's all of those that I got for now. So, <laughs> I'm thank you for being a good sport with that. You're welcome. I want to go into some of your personal broadcast stories back to your career. We're bouncing all over the place here today. What is the weirdest place you have ever broadcasted a game from, location wise? This will go back. Well, I, I have two of those. Uh, one, I will go to my senior year in college. And for some reason, it's another Syracuse-Boston College uh, story. Last football game of the of the season, 1980. Syracuse again playing at BC in Chestnut Hill, Mass. And being the student station, we are remanded to the auxiliary press box on the other side of the field. Well, as you well know, Logan... Every good play-by-play person worth his salt, no matter the weather, has the window in the press box open <laughs> if you're doing play-by-play. 
So my partner and I had the window open. Keep in mind, it's the third, fourth week in November. And in Boston, it gets a little chilly. Well, we are in the auxiliary press box, which is just a big box with lots of people in it, including priests who were teachers at Boston College, Patrick Ewing, who is then a senior in high school who's being recruited by Boston College, uh, friends, boosters, and, well, we go, we take our headsets off at the end of the first half, and the Monsignors are screaming at us, how dare you have that window open? It's cold. You're guests here, and you should act. And now I, always, I was always taught that guests were treated better than the host, but I just tried to explain to them that we needed to do it with the window open, otherwise it would sound like we were in an echo chamber. So they begrudgingly said, okay. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm doing high school football games in eastern, southeastern Massachusetts. And my partner and I are doing a game in Hull, Massachusetts, which is on a peninsula. My headset is plugged into a boombox. And I keep hearing all of this extraneous audio in my headset, and I can't figure out what it is. And it keeps going on and going on, and finally about the second quarter, I figure out what it is, because I understood one of the communications. It was the control tower at Logan Airport in Boston talking to pilots of planes on approach to Logan Airport. Now, you have to understand that Hull, Massachusetts, on this peninsula, is right across Boston Harbor from the airport. And I finally figured out that that's what I was hearing. So that was kind of strange, but fun story to tell. Any other horror stories that stand out? I call them horror stories. That's really an over huge overstatement, but any other ones out there that you want to just bring out and, you know, kind of exercise those demons? Um, I'm, I'm sure there are ones where, actually, I, I can, some of my least favorite ones are the ones where, the you know, in the communications business, the communications aren't working so well. <laughs> um, it was either my first or second year doing sidelines for Wake Forest football, and we're playing out at Stanford. And for one of the things, when you're the sideline guy, you're, you're using a wireless headset, which is your receiver, and a wireless transmitter, which is in your microphone. Well, for the first quarter, uh, my play-by-play and color guy and engineer spotter couldn't hear me. And for the second quarter, I couldn't hear them. So as you might imagine, during the first half of the game, I wasn't on. Now, when you fly all the way across the country to do a game, you kind of feel like you're wasting your time when you're not on at all. And finally, we figured it out at halftime, uh, got the wireless signal straight, and and we were good. But that was a disaster. Then there's the, the all-weather sideline uh, experience. This would have been... It was either the same year as Stanford or the year before. Wake Forest is playing a game at Navy, at Navy Marine Corps Stadium in Annapolis, Maryland. Now, I will tell you, 
if you've never been to a game at one of the service academies, that should be right at the top of your bucket list because because there's nothing like standing on the field when either the midshipmen or the cadets march in, and if the hair on all the hair on your body doesn't stand up, there's probably something wrong with you. Um, it, it's just it, it's a very emotional experience. Well, anyway, this game at Navy. Suffice to say, I have been drier standing in the ocean than I was that day. (laughs) It was like a mini hurricane descended over Annapolis. Uh, I was, it was raining so hard, I had actually a really good rain slicker top on, and I tried to bury my microphone under the coat so it wouldn't get wet. It was okay if I got wet, but we don't want the equipment to get wet. The only problem was, instead of a full rain suit, I had regular pants on. So all of the water just cascaded down my legs into my shoes. My shoes were waterproof. Now, the only problem with that is it's also waterproof going out. So all the water that ponded in my shoes couldn't get out. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't know, we travel with the team. So we travel on the team charter, and we bus back and forth to the airport. The only difference between us and the players is we're doing the post-game show while they are showering and changing. We don't get to change. And I can't tell you how fortunate we were that it was a, an unseasonably warm late October day because otherwise chafing would have taken on a whole new meaning for me. As the, the, I don't, I don't think I could be any wetter than I was that day. But, you know, such, such is the life of a sideline reporter. You're out in the elements. How has your preparation process changed uh, since you got out of school? Because obviously, you went through the through non-internet to basically everything being online. How has that changed? Oh, and I, I tell kids now, you don't know how spoiled you are. Um, yeah, I used to, uh, I probably shouldn't tell this tale on myself, but I will. If I we was doing that. a game on the, yes, if I was doing a game on the student radio station at Syracuse, I would skip all of my Friday classes to do my spotting charts. And so I would you know, painstakingly go through name, number, height, weight, year, hometown, their stats, um, and, and be ready for the game on Saturday. Um, I did, in, in the middle of my uh, Wake Forest football radio career, uh, I went from the sidelines up to the booth to do color for two years, and then I've been back on the sidelines for a couple. Uh, if I was doing color, my preparation would be a lot more than it is on the sidelines. Because I have a full-time job, it makes it a little more difficult uh, to spend a lot of time getting ready. And truthfully, when you're the sideline guy, your job is to get information, maybe add a little color. Obviously, you interview the head coach coming off the field at halftime and after the game, and then I interview two players after the game in the locker room. So I I used to be so over-focused on statistics and things like that. Now I look for more more opportunities to ask good questions and then – my, one of my favorite relationships is with the medical staff because anytime you're finding about, you, know, you want to find out about injuries and 
Uh, I, I've known the Wake Forest staff for so long that they feel comfortable. They feel very comfortable. Um, I'll go over to the bench and say, you know, what is it? And they'll tell me it's the Ebola virus or West Nile because um, they kid like that. So do you, as a sideline reporter, wake up at night with a cold sweat dreaming of asking Greg Popovich questions on the sideline, having nightmares? I can certainly relate to that. It is uh, it's one of the most uncomfortable situations, depending on whom you're working with. Uh, I was very fortunate in my first several years. Uh, Jim Grobe, who was Wake Forest head football coach, not only the nicest football coach that I've ever dealt with, quite possibly and probably the nicest man I have ever dealt with in this business. Uh, the current coach, Dave Clawson, has wound a little tighter, but he is a uh, really, really sharp guy. He, he kind of he bit at me one time his first year and then apologized afterwards. So, and you know, in, in that position, it's not about you. You know, you have to realize that coaches are are hyper focused on the game and their team, and in many cases, you're just a distraction on the way to the locker room. But your job is to convey what the coach is feeling, thinking to your audience. So, you know, you're fighting that battle. Coaches are not going to give away any secrets. Um, and, and you're trying to get them to you know, go as deep as possible. So it's that balancing act, and uh, it's fun. I enjoy the relationships with the coaches. In fact, Coach Clausen at Wake is on our honorary board, as are most of the, the main head football coaches and basketball coaches in the state of North Carolina, the bigger schools, uh, and we invite them to come to the banquet and play golf. He actually picked up the phone himself and called me to say, he was going on vacation that day and couldn't make it, but I appreciated the fact that uh, he didn't just return the reply card with an X saying he wasn't going to be there. So if you have a day off and you have the radio on, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both on a national basis and maybe some local people from your area that do a good job that maybe other people don't know about? Well, i tell you what. I have about a 45- or 50-minute commute each way to work every day. And the godsend for me is satellite radio. Um, I don't necessarily have games on the way in the morning or even in the in the early evening, but uh, I get to listen to a lot of a lot of stuff that I wouldn't normally be able to. As far as games and to be able to listen to Vin Scully doing a Dodgers game in his what 68th year, I mean the fact that he's doing games, you know, 12 years longer than I've been alive is is amazing to me and. I'm not young. Um, and then the other kick for me is listening to guys that I've met at our awards weekend. And, you know, there's nothing like turning it on, turning a game on, and, oh, there's so-and-so who does the, the White Sox or the Angels or the Cardinals who was here uh, a couple years ago, or Pete Weber now doing a, a National Predators game who's been here several times. Um, for me, that's the, the fun of it to – like okay i've met these guys but i've never heard them and now i get to hear them oh no i've truly made it when you've listened to me on satellite radio so here's the here's the last question before i let you give a little self-plug for your event and let people know how to to sign up for it and so on and so forth there my favorite part of the last two years has been the downtown barbecue dinner it's incredible 
you have competition barbecue, it's a big mixer, and everyone's there. What happens to those leftovers? Are there leftovers? I, I don't know. know. Uh, You're in charge. Typically, typically we give them to uh, the the local homeless shelter, if there are. Uh, this year we're switching it up a little bit, by the way. Uh, we're not going to have the competition barbecue. We're barbecuing right there at the train station. We're going to have Lexington barbecue, which is world famous. So that'll be a first for you. Okay. Tell tell me why I should be excited about Lexington barbecue. I mean, I live in South Dakota. We're not a food state, so. It it is world-famous barbecue. It is one of the meccas of barbecue in the world. If you you tell a a foodie, a barbecue expert, I had Lexington barbecue, they'll be jealous. Is that from Lexington, Kentucky? Is there a Lexington, North Carolina? I'm, I'm just not sure. Lexington, North Carolina, which is maybe a half hour away from, not even a half hour away from Salisbury. In fact, it is the hometown of John Skipper, the president of ESPN, who I am told may very well be at our awards banquet in honor of Chris Berman. Very nice. That'll be a lot of fun. Take a second to tell people how to sign up to go to the event in Salisbury, when to do it, and whatever else you want to say for giving me so much of your time and so generously. Well, if you want to sign up, you better do so soon. June 1st is our deadline. Just go to nationalsportsmedia.org, and on the right-hand side of the homepage, look for the word events, and click on the 57th Annual NSMA Awards Weekend, and there's a registration link right there. If anybody wanted to follow you on social media or get a hold of you for anything, how would they do so? Uh, Facebook, we have I have my own page, Dave Gordon. We have the National Sports Media Association page. Twitter, we are at NSMA Sports Media. Um, that's about it. I've kind of stayed, stayed away from Instagram a little bit lately. With your Hall of Fame, do you have an actual building in the for your Hall of Fame yet? I know you were in the process of that last time I was down there. Not yet. We are we are trying to add to our staff at NSMA so we can uh, hopefully get an endowment so we can keep this awards weekend rolling, and then uh, hopefully with Catawba College's help maybe build a building that would house us and their new sports communications program. So I'll have to wait at least one more year to sneak in there and hide my picture. But once again, we're, we're visiting with Dave Gorin. He is the executive director of the National Sports Media Association and the Associated Hall of Fame. Puts on the award weekends coming up. And Dave, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Logan, anytime. I see my wife beckoning me here at the Mexican restaurant, so... I appreciate you having me on, and I'll see you in a couple weeks. All right. Thank you very much. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. You can follow me, Logan Anderson, on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or you can sign up to subscribe for the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at the top right-hand corner of com. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.